You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me as usual, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Doing well. I'm still uh, reeling from this new uh, news about North Korea. Uh, So just to contextualize things for our listeners, we're going to be talking about the U.S.-North Korea diplomatic process again because there's always more to say about that. Um, but just before we started recording uh, recording this podcast, uh, there was a uh, particularly important new bit of information that came out courtesy of a uh, report at um, Vox by uh, Alex Ward, uh, who was told by sources in Washington, D.C. that one of the concessions that the United States uh, specifically delivered to North Korea, apart from the declaration included in the Singapore statement that Trump and Kim signed to have both countries work towards a peace regime, Trump apparently specifically uh, said that the United States would sign an end-of-war declaration uh, soon after the summit. So that's kind of one of the things that's been simmering behind the scenes. Uh, But yeah, Prashant, there's a lot to talk about. August has kind of led to this fizzle in U.S.-North Korea diplomacy, a predictable fizzle, if I might say so. But but yeah, uh, so where do you think we should um, start today? I think, you know, probably a good place to start would be just this this whole sort of, um, I guess— ongoing conversation about Trump has taken a very unconventional approach when it comes to North Korea. And I think initially observers um, have been giving him kind of the benefit of the doubt for the most part, sort of saying that given the fact that other approaches have been tried and they haven't worked before, let's just kind of see how this plays out. So things like planning for a potential summit and making preparations and kind of escalating slowly to the leader's level, that's been kind of turned on its head. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, since we've seen the, the, the sort of Singapore summit meeting between the two leaders, there's been this ongoing conversation about, you know, why hasn't there ever been progress? Has this kind of stalled? Is it better characterized as a failure of, of this initiative or policy? I don't sense that we have a, a clear sense of whether, you know, what this actually is. But I certainly think that relative to where we were um, at the beginning of the year, where folks were saying, you know, sort of give this a chance, we are seeing a little bit more ambivalence now about uh, where that is. I mean, I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is we really don't know to what extent uh, some of this recalibration and, and stories being leaked and, and re- revelations have to do with how both sides are kind of playing things up. And there's actually more progress going on behind the scenes right. or whether this is actually a case of uh, this approach, um, a- as we've kind of predicted at the outset, it's a very risky gamble that is actually not paying off. So I-, I do think that that's kind of the big question that that kind of is pending. Right. So I think what we're seeing now is sort of the risk that many of us had sort of identified when the Singapore summit was first announced. Uh, or at least the meeting between Trump and Kim was announced on March 8th. Uh, the risk always was that. You put Trump in a room with uh, Kim Jong-un or a senior North Korean official, for example, uh, Kim Jong-chol when he traveled to Washington, D.C., and there's really no telling what he might verbally agree to. Uh, And as we've seen with this administration, Trump's utterances aren't always the same thing as U.S. policy. Uh, So that's kind of the place we are, um, we're in right now. Uh, So it would seem that, you know, we saw this at the Singapore summit when at the press conference, uh, Trump you know, received quite a bit of flack for calling the defense of U.S.-South Korea military exercises war games and calling them provocative. Uh, clearly, that was something that he'd been told by the North Koreans, and it immediately imprinted on him, and he sort of expressed that as his own view. And similarly, it seems that earlier on, um, perhaps as early as Kim Yong-chol's trip to Washington, uh, right before the Singapore summit, 
Trump had agreed to an end-of-war declaration, which, by the way, is an inter-Korean objective as well. The two Koreas are particularly keen on accomplishing a, a declaration to end the war by the end of 2018. That's not the same thing as a peace treaty regime, uh, which would come after a peace treaty. And the peace regime is something that's alluded to in both the uh, Singapore Statement and the Panmunjom Declaration between the two Koreas. But this issue of the end of war declaration now is, is sort of coming due. The North Koreans uh, reportedly are asking the United States why it's sort of holding back. Uh, so this letter recently that the White House received, or Pompeo received, from Kim Yong-chol. Kim Yong-chol, by the way, is uh, Pompeo's counterpart in these talks with North Korea. Uh, he's the former head of North Korea's Reconnaissance General Bureau, a trusted loyalist to Kim Jong-un. Uh, he's been charged by North Korea with sort of handling the implementation phase of the Singapore talks. So uh, according to the head of the South Korean National Intelligence Service in a report by the uh, the Hankoria newspaper from South Korea, uh, the, the letter from Kim Jong-chol um, reportedly demanded uh, an assurance from the United States that it, it needs to deliver on this end-of-war declaration. And the urgency is obviously high because uh, in September we have the fifth inter-Korean summit, the third between Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un coming up uh, in Pyongyang, and the South Koreans are naturally anxious now, given the breakdown in the U.S.-North Korea um, a, a, a diplomatic talks. And the other issue here that uh, bears mentioning, this we've seen the North Koreans talk about this in their propaganda, is the sort of, uh, obviously the denuclearization issue has not gone away. In fact, it's become a more prominent feature of the U.S. negotiating position in the weeks since the Singapore process. So, Apparently, Pompeo has been bringing, um, when he traveled to Pyongyang in early July, the visit after which uh, North Korea said was a regrettable attitude by the United States with sort of a gangster-like attitude. Apparently, Pompeo proposed that North Korea ship uh, some percentage of its warheads to a third country. But the North Koreans effectively see the United States as sort of reneging on the promises that were made by Trump uh, at the Singapore summit. So it's understandable why this process is starting to crumble, and it puts the administration in a bit of a corner now, because either they have to deliver on what Trump promised the North Koreans, uh, which is something, by the way, that uh, John Bolton, Jim Mattis uh, have their reservations about. Uh, the end of war declaration, while it doesn't imply a peace treaty, it creates the political circumstances on the peninsula that really create momentum towards a peace treaty that the United States has long had reservations about for a variety of reasons, um, mostly having to do with the future of the U.S.-Korea alliance and the future of the United States and East Asia more broadly. Um, so that's sort of where we are right now, um, and it's really uh, it, it's really hard to say where things go. But uh, it's hard it's hard for me personally to see a positive path out of this. I mean, we've seen U.S. North Korea negotiations fall apart in the past because of these kinds of misunderstandings and misalignments and priorities, and and to me, it looks like it's happening again. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that, you know the point you made about uh, you know words mattering in in terms of North Korea issue is really important. I mean, the North Korea. North Koreans for a long time. History of negotiations have been very good at using uh, words or promises uh, that the United States has has offered um, and spitting those back to the United States and saying, you know, you, you have not delivered and you're not a credible partner, um, even as the United States kind of does the same thing. So it really does matter, even if, you know, President Trump doesn't think so. Uh, the North Koreans do scrutinize language and statements very carefully, and, and they will use that uh, as a weapon in, in ongoing negotiations. I think the other thing that you pointed out that's really important to, to emphasize for listeners is, I mean, there is sort of a domestic debate too on North Korea policy. Um, there were folks at the very beginning when this happened that already expressed skepticism about you know, any kind of potential for engagement happening. And the North Koreans were never really serious about 
denuclear, de, not only denuclearization, but kind of any inroads in terms of negotiations in the United States, and that they really were interested in kind of pursuing their, their weapons program and then also splitting the U.S. from, from South Korea. And I think that debate continues to play out. And, and one of the interesting questions is, if we continue to see not a lot of uh, progress on, on this front, how does that affect domestic political dynamics? I mean, John Bolton and some of the other more skeptical members of the Trump administration, does that kind of give them leverage to then propose to President Trump that he should take kind of a, a more hardline stance and position on this issue? Because, I mean, let's face it, I mean, the, for the Trump administration, you know, this is a, a kind of, I mean, foreign policy matters only to a certain degree in U.S. domestic politics, but this is a midterm election year. Um, and Trump has made this a very high-profile issue. And so I don't think he'll want to admit, uh, characteristic President Trump, that he's he sort of failed in any way. But I also think that this has domestic political implications for how U.S. policy works and, and those kinds of debates as well. Um, and I do think, you know, one of the other things um, that we do need to keep in mind is, I mean, what is the reality on the ground, right? So there have been reports that have been surface, surfacing over the past few weeks I mean, you've done a couple as well about, you know, what are the North Koreans actually doing with respect to the nuclear missile program? Um, how are they actually behaving in terms of some of these specific metrics? And so I think one of the things that'd be useful for us to do is to kind of provide what have the North Koreans been doing so far in terms mm -hmm. of these developments, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's probably useful uh, to talk about and just to lay out for our listeners here. Um, so... In both the April 27th agreement and the June 12th agreement, uh, North Korea committed to quote-unquote complete denuclearization. Uh, and that's a tricky phase because to a layperson, that sounds like the North Koreans agreed to give up their nukes. Uh, but in the context of what that means in the long history since 1992 of the word denuclearization being used in the Korean Peninsula context, it's a it's a trickier topic uh, for the North Koreans. Denuclearization, complete denuclearization, refers to something more like global disarmament or bilateral uh, arms reductions with the United States. It does not refer to, above all, unilateral disarmament. And the North Koreans have been clear about this for a long time. In May, uh, some listeners might recall that Trump suddenly called off the summit meeting with Kim Jong Un after the North Koreans released a nasty statement about John Bolton. And the reason for that statement was because Bolton had been talking about the Libya model, which was unilateral nuclear disarmament with warheads being shipped away and uh, sort of disposed of uh, off-site. And the North Koreans said, look, this is not what we're interested in discussing. It is simply not what we're willing to do. If you want to talk to us in the spirit of um, a, you know, a, a different kind of good faith process, we're interested in talking, but unilateral disarmament is not on the agenda. And they've been clear about this, right? This is not an example of the North Koreans now cheating, because yes, there has been evidence that the North Koreans are continuing to build out their arsenal. Even Pompeo can get around that when he had to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in, uh, I believe it was late June, he said that uh, they were continuing to produce fissile material. So all of this is continuing, but it's not evidence that the North Koreans are really cheating the United States or sort of going back on the agreements they made at Singapore. It's really uh, the North Koreans really doing precisely what they said they would do. You can go all the way back to the New Year's Day speech that Kim Jong-un delivered this year on January 1st when he, uh, he directed North Korea's munitions industry and the ballistic um, and the nuclear weapons institute to mass produce warheads and ballistic missiles. And yeah, we have seen signs that that kind of activity is ongoing. They're producing launchers for their new solid fuel missiles. They're producing new ICBMs. Um, there's a chance that we might get to see some of this hardware actually very soon. So, um, you know, maybe looking forward a bit, Prashant, uh, mm -hmm. September is a huge month 
um, not only because of the upcoming inter-Korean meeting, uh, and also because of the dramatic state in which U.S.-North Korea relations are right now in the post-Singapore uh, era, but also because uh, Ch Chinese President Xi Jinping is probably going to show up in Pyongyang on September 9th for the uh, 70th anniversary celebrations of North Korea's founding. And looking at satellite imagery of the parade preparation grounds near Pyongyang, it looks like North Korea is going to hold, hold another military parade. They'll be flexing their military muscles for the first time since February 8th this year, which is... Uh, which was one day before the start of the Winter Olympics with South Korea. And the Winter Olympics, um, our listeners might recall, were the initiation of the dramatic inter-Korean rapprochement that led to the Panmunjom summit in April. So North Korea really hasn't been showing the world its missiles and its warheads, but we look to be getting a parade soon, and they're going to remind the world that, yes, these weapons are still here, we're not denuclearizing, and um, no better way to do that than to hold another military parade. So I'll also be curious to see how Trump reacts, because I think you're absolutely right about the domestic political angle here, that there is a lot riding for Trump on this. Uh, certainly the way he presented the Singapore summit, you know, the day after he said that there was no more threat from North Korea, mm -hmm. that's going to be a fiction that's growing increasingly difficult to sustain, I think. Uh, even even with um, the, uh, you know, the Trump-focused media out there, like uh, Fox News, uh, they've been starting to acknowledge that yeah, the North Koreans are sort of continuing their uh, activities. So in the lead up to the midterms, uh, this is going to turn into a big issue, especially if this process continues to grow more acrimonious. If the United States, if within the administration, uh, you know, Mattis, Bolton, Pompeo, Trump uh, can't sort of come around to essentially an agreement that they will have to concede this end of war declaration, um, I think the process just ends up blowing up. And that's also a huge blow to the U.S.-South Korea alliance because the South Koreans are on board. Part of Moon's rapprochement with North Korea is premised around the idea of finally ending the Korean War. That's something the two Koreas have agreed on. So if the United States becomes the spoiler here, that's uh, you know not only a bad outcome for the U.S.-North Korea process, but also for the U.S.-South Korea alliance, I think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think that's one of the interesting things that we'll see in, in the coming weeks, which is um, this this idea that's always kind of been in the background that there is a potential that the United States and the Trump administration may not be satisfied with the degree of progress they're making with North Korea, but the South Koreans may be. Um, and in a sort of series of engagements where Kim Jong-un is engaging with South Korea, is engaging with China, is engaging with Russia, might this be a process where eventually or, or slowly and gradually we are looking at a place where the United States is increasingly left out uh, of a process where the North Koreans are now engaging more with uh, the South Koreans and, and these other partners. And what does that mean for where the United States stands in U.S. policy? I think you're very interestingly, you're seeing, you know, U.S. officials and anonymous sources in the last few weeks mentioning caution on this point, right? That, um, you know, there is a risk really that the South Koreans are willing to go um, at this alone in spite of the fact that the United States isn't happy with the degree of process there. Um, and I think, you know, you're, you're right in terms of cautioning about what that means for the alliance, because it, it, it does sort of lead to some differences of opinion for, for the U.S.-South Korea alliance. That's right. Um, and, you know, I think a scenario we're also heading towards is, uh, you know, there's always the nagging issue of sanctions relief. And mm -hmm. the South Koreans have been quite realistic about that. And I, uh, I heard that when I was in Seoul as well, that the South Koreans are not rosy eyed about the prospects for sanctions relief. But what they've been doing since April and, and even earlier is really... Any time of in, uh, any kind of inter-Korean activity that is possible and legal under 
um, under the current sanctions regime, uh, with a few exceptions. You know, the issue of a liaison office in Pyongyang, something that the Panmunjom Declaration set out, has turned into a controversy. Uh, some in the United States sort of see that as a joint venture with North Korea, which would violate existing Security Council resolutions. But otherwise, every kind of inter-Korean activity, you know, sports tournaments, uh, they've even had magician exchanges. Obviously, the family reunions just happened in uh, late August. Um, mm-hmm. All of that has been ongoing to sort of keep up the um, uh, the spirit of progress. And now if the United States becomes a spoiler, uh, and certainly the United States doesn't appear to be heading in the direction of supporting any kind of sanctions relief for North Korea before concrete action, whatever that might mean, on denuclearization, I think the South Koreans will eventually find themselves having more in common with China and Russia uh, at, mm-hmm. the, uh, at the P5 level at the Security Council in terms of uh, the way to proceed on um, on sanctions relief for North Korea. And if sanctions relief does come for North Korea, it's probably going to come with um, rollbacks to some of the sectoral sanctions that were enacted in 2017 on sort of entire sectors of the North Korean economy. Uh, things like um, textiles, for example, a major source of revenue for North Korea, potentially increasing the cap on uh, on uh, oil exports and, um, uh, sorry, oil imports and uh, coal exports from North Korea. But uh, all of that right now is not in uh, on the agenda in Washington. Uh, you know, the U.S. approach continues to be the old one of uh, until the North Koreans effectively give up all their nukes, there won't be a single you know piece of sanctions relief. So that's really going to grow untenable if this next inter-Korean summit uh, turns out to again um, re- regenerate momentum. And there's also the other possibility that the next inter-Korean summit is actually less comfortable than. Um, than the first one uh, this year in April, because that one was a, uh, a, a truly historic event. And then there was a second one in late May after Trump canceled the summit where Moon had to sort of impromptu call up Kim Jong-un and try to save the process. But now Moon, I think, will um, will face a little bit more difficulty here because the North Koreans are getting impatient on this issue. And the South Koreans are also in a difficult position because, um, you know, they've been trying to communicate the U.S. position to North Korea, but there's been little... Um, interest in uh, in doing that, you know, they've more been kind of trying to explain the North Korean position to the United States, uh, which is important, I think, for this administration certainly, but um, not really, uh, yeah, not really where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, uh, so you know, we have a little bit more time left on the podcast, so why don't we move on to something a lot more complicated than uh, North Korea? Uh, I'm, I'm joking there, but you know, it might seem that way sometimes with uh, Australian politics. Um, so. Uh, last week, I guess the Australian government totally melted down uh, due to an internal um, Liberal Party sort of leadership spill. Um, and that sounds, if that sounds familiar, it should because we had a similar spill in uh, September 2015. So the Liberal Party um, ousted Malcolm Turnbull um, over a uh, variety of sort of internal issues. And now Australia has a new prime minister, Scott Morrison, uh, slightly to Turnbull's right within the party. Um, Morrison was, again, flanked on his right by uh, Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, who sort of initiated the challenge to Turnbull, um, but uh, ended up sort of falling short of the um, votes necessary within the party to uh, come out on top as prime minister. Uh, So Turnbull is expected to leave Australian politics later this week. Um, But yeah, this, I think, uh, you know, Prashant highlights uh, the sort of instability of political leadership in Australia more broadly. And, you know, I think that has implications for uh, Australian foreign policy, certainly. I think uh, Morrison has tried to preserve a degree of continuity um, mm. in uh, in his administration. The new cabinet, for example, um, moves over uh, Maurice Payne, the uh, former defense minister, into the foreign affairs portfolio. So she's now the new foreign um, minister replacing uh, Julie Bishop. Uh, and she and she's a well-known figure to um, regional partners for Australia, particularly in Southeast Asia, 
and the like. So that's a uh, positive mood. But but yeah, what's your um what's your broader take here? I mean, we've kind of seen this kind of lingering challenge for a lot of countries, right? I mean, I am a little bit surprised by Australia because if you'd asked me a few months ago, you know, where I'd be expecting some kind of dramatic political overturn, potentially it might have even been Japan where uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, scandals made him look precarious uh, just a few months ago. But but yeah, here we are in Australia with the new government. So what's your uh, what's your reaction here? So I, I think twofold. One uh, is is what you highlighted earlier, which is, you know, you have seen this kind of wave of populist uh, sentiment uh, across several countries around uh, social issues, political issues and the like. Um, and Australia, you could argue, you could argue either way. But I, I do think, you know, there, there is a school of thought that says that the Australians have just kind of staved off an, another potential populist wave uh, in the Australian context because Peter Dutton had taken over. Given some of his positions on on social issues, including um, rights of Aborigines and and, and the things like that, um, that would have been major discon discontinuity for Australia. Um, but the fact that uh, they don't have that is sort of um, a, more of a signal of continuity than it otherwise would have been. So that's kind of the domestic political context. But I think the other one is is what you highlighted as well, which is you know we have this growing conception of the Indo-Pacific, which kinds which kind of nets together this even more sort of wide and expansive range of allies and partners. And, and the question has always been, you know, when you have political alignment am among various leaders, what happens if one or two of these individuals um, actually lead the scene? Um, and, and you saw this, I mean, this is important because during the George W. Bush administration, as you and I have discussed before, you had the quadrilateral agreement and you, simil you had similar leadership dynamics affect how, the sustainability of how that security arrangement took place. And so now, you know, the one of the other things that I think is going uh, sort of in the, in the back of people's minds is to what extent will you see some of these leadership changes affect strategic cooperation and alignment between these countries? And like you said, I mean, there, there's, there's you know, reasons to worry on, on several counts, right? Whether you've had Prime Minister Abe in Japan and, and some of that uh, shakiness initially, you have uh, Prime Minister Modi, who's been a source of continuity with respect to India, but you know, folks are, are not sure how long he's going to last. I mean, there's there's elections coming up, and and you know, he might stick around for a while. But with all of these uh, countries and leaders, I think there's always sort of a a two-parter, right? It's you know, it's great that we're seeing this promise and this alignment, but will we see this under a future leader uh, that emerges? And for Australia. That's, I guess, even more of a consideration given that we've had now four prime ministers in, in a decade, right? And, you know, none of them have finished their terms completely and then done a second term. And it's also a parliamentary system, which, which always creates its own sort of dynamics. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the issue here, though, I think has really been the internal party dynamics in the, in the Liberal Party itself. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, the sort of populist nature of this... Um, is a little bit less clear to me, I guess. Uh, it really does seem like sort of inter-party jockeying. And the Liberal Party certainly does have its polls, right? I mean, uh, Turnbull, I guess, comparatively was a um, was pretty liberal compared to a guy like Dutton, who is perhaps more, um, you know, Trump-like or, uh, or more far-right in his uh, preferences more generally. Uh, but that sort of uh, is kind of where the uh, unpredictability comes in. So, you know, there were um, intraparty disagreements here about Australia's approach to climate change, for example, that might now become a uh, a change in Australian foreign policy, um, more broadly speaking. But, yeah, these issues, I think, you know, are always worth keeping an eye on the domestic politics um, of these um, major players uh, in the in the Indo-Pacific. And it's certainly... 
you know, um, we've talked about this before as well, but it's something that a country like China doesn't have to really deal with, right? We we pretty much know that Xi Jinping is going to be sticking around unless there's some kind of catastrophic uh, unforeseen event uh, that results in a major uh, major crisis in China. But uh, but yeah, uh, these um, parliamentary democracies uh, don't have the same sense of stability. Yep, and and I think you're you're right to point to um, these other issues that you know sometimes get a shorter shrift relative to some of the geopolitical and security concerns. Right, one is energy policy and climate change, which was a major driver, and then this kind of leadership shift and the contemporary dynamics. But another one's also the fact that you know Scott Morrison was also one of the individuals who was uh, kind of more in the camp of making sure that refugees don't get brought into uh, Australia mm-hmm. and sort of turning away boats um, mm-hmm. of these individuals. And right. that's something which you know has animated Australia's relationships with, with its neighbors for a long time. Um, and so I do think that some of these areas where um, we, we might not necessarily see a lot of focus on might end up be the ones that, um, you know, sort of bedevil relations of Australia and some of these neighboring states. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll uh, leave it there for today. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me as always, Prashant. Uh, for our listeners, if you uh, like what you heard and you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so. You can do so either on uh, iTunes, Google Play, or any number of other uh, podcast providers. And uh, if you have been a subscriber but you haven't left us a review, um, that would be really appreciated on either uh, iTunes or Google Play. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.